G'day listeners, this episode is proudly brought to you by our major sponsor, subshq.com.au. Use code BENS15 at checkout to receive 15% off on your next purchase. G'day listeners and welcome back to a very special episode of the Matter Mentality Podcast where we talk all things training, nutrition and psychology to help you optimize and be at your best. I am joined today by a, I'm not even sure how I'm going to do this intro, but I want to preface it properly because there is a lot of history here for us to talk about. The person sitting opposite me in this conversation is a friend, a mentor, a colleague, a educator, a supporter. He has been a coach, pretty much everything you need to help start building yourself and a business and succeed. Um, And that is Dalton Frank. How are we, sir? Thanks, mate. I'm well, you? Mate, I'm... It's Thursday, three days out from the national show for season A, so I'm I'm pretty good. I'm excited, nervous, keen to see what Michael can do, but I'm good. Yeah, awesome. I've been following his progress, so it looks he looks awesome. And this week, I'm excited to see how the changes play out from what he brought to states. Yeah, it's uh, it's been an interesting. Um, yeah, as you would know, there's there's only very few strategies that a bodybuilding coach can have once we get this close, right? And so for us, like by the time this comes out, it'll be well and truly passed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we kind of just looked at the strategy of what we brought to national uh, states and was like, well, you know, we were that close to a striking distance of coming under 90s um, mm-hmm. that we may as well push the envelope a little bit and just peel that little bit more off and just, just flatten back out a bit um, yeah. and put him against the best in the under 90s division and see what that can do. Because, um, you know, for me, and I think we kind of had that similar process when we worked together, was that bodybuilding is not a a an experience, if you will. It's something that I want to win. It's something that we do to to push the extremity. Um, yep. And so for us, it was like, well, you can just show up there and do novice or we can try and win. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, under 90s was kind of like that best potential for him to do that. So it's going to be a chance yeah. to put him on the national stage and see what happens. But yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, very. Yeah, there's going to be a, a few weapons up there against him. So mate. it's going to be, yeah, I'm, I'm keen to watch it. Um, mate, all right. Let's get into uh, now. The main reason for what I think is going to be takeaway or, or beneficial from this chat is going to be mostly that these are just going to be similar chats. I mean, you've had across mm-hmm. nearly a decade now um, yeah. that have just not been yeah. recorded or, or put on. But usually, usually we're talking, I uh, guess, on the same side of the camera or the or the, or the couch when mm-hmm. we were working together <laughs> and we we're you know doing things yeah. and talking to people. But you know, now I finally get to dive into your head a bit more personally. Um but yeah, so main thing I kind of want to talk, take away from this, I, I hope listeners, listeners take away from this, is a bit more around our understanding of behavior change, lifestyle modifications, how yep. that can impact body composition, but also sustainable body composition without the need of yep. rapid challenges and rapid aggressive cuts that can't be sustained and held. Um, yep. You know how we use things like acceptance therapy and, and psychology in those roles. So I think there's going to be a lot of takeaways for more of my coaching listeners. Um, and hopefully for people to come that do manage to come across this, we'll be able to improve their coaching services and what they offer as well. So yeah, it's yes. kind of the, the 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 point, I guess, that we can take away from this. But to really dive in, I've known this story a hundred times, but give us a bit of a background of yourself, where you've come from and where you kind of are now. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was in the army for a while when I was 17 to 21. Um, and Basically, when I was there, I realized I was not fit compared to some of the other guys. And so I was trying to figure out what to do about how to be more fit, you know, what I could do. So I started 
reading magazines and uh, the internet was obviously super um, fashionable back then. It was bodybuilding forums and <laughs> like, fitness forums and stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, I just try and consume knowledge on there. And really, I had no interest in nutrition initially, even though now more people know me as a nutritionist than anything around training. But I actually loved training and spoke about training and only cared for training for probably about four years. So I consumed everything that I could find on that. And um, I, I, like it was just, all, you know, it was all anecdotes. It's everyone's personal experience on what they were doing. And so I just tried to copy what people were doing, not really understanding how to apply it to my extreme situation of training two or three times a day and then trying to add a, you know, another gym routine on top of it or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And really not gauging how nutrition played out, not gauging how alcohol and sleep played out and stress management, especially being in the army. And yep. in the army is the worst environment for alcohol, food and sleep and stress. Mm -hmm. So it was just like, I was just, yeah, breaking myself over and over. And eventually I did, I did break my right ankle, had to get some surgery and um, fix myself. And then after that, I was a little bit jaded that I felt like I just couldn't kind of get there and I was over the system. So I got out. Still very interested in uh, programming, but started to become interested in nutrition because someone asked me, I remember this exact situation. Someone asked me what a carbohydrate was when they were reading something on um, a back of a nutritional label and I couldn't answer them. Poison, right? So yeah. I felt so dumb that I was like, I didn't want to ever feel that feeling again. So I started like researching everything that I could around nutrition to the point now I don't know if if I wanted to, I could we can talk complex organic chemistry all, all the way through to like <laughs> micro concepts. But um, yeah, I just when I when I started reading about nutrition, everything kind of clicked, and I could I felt like I could see in my head the the whole way that things played out, um, and so that spurred my interest. I was really became really um, interested in both combining nutrition nutrition and training. Um, but then left the army, started doing personal training, realized everyone would ask me about nutrition on, on top of personal training. So did some qualifications in that. And then uh, it was about four or five years into my coaching career that um, I was working for a company and we had a heap of clients that were like with us and we would have some phenomenal performers and then some, you know, people that would just really struggle and it was conversations like, you know, I was overwhelmed at work today or like I haven't stopped at work today or whatever. We, when we, whenever we chat or do an email or something like that. And um felt like I had no tools or no like nothing that I could offer them for when they were like, you know, venting those things that they were coming across uh, other than like, I don't know, dumb strategies that I see everyone else vent. Or, I mean, um, answer these questions with like, have you gone for a walk or have you meditated? Just or, distract you know, yourself. Did you journal something, you know? And it's like, holy shit. Okay. So I was done repeating those things and really not getting many results. So, um, you know, and another experience of not liking how dumb I felt in those moments and useless, I started investigating everything around psychology. I twisted my, um, my bachelor that I was doing at the time and exercise and nutritional bachelor um, to incorporate a lot of psychology as well. So I, all my electives, I made psychology based around that um to really just figure out how humans work and what i could do to offer better advice than journal something down or go for a walk mm -hmm. um and then i left that company and finished my degree and i've just done more and more courses around this so uh stuff around cognitive behavioral therapy which we can talk on in a, a moment um i found act as well which is acceptance uh, acceptance and commitment therapy which is uh kind of the next stage of where CBT has moved towards mm -hmm. uh, or at least 
you know, uh, a little bit further into understanding people and stuff like that. Um, and then, then found through my, uh, university studies, um, self-determination theory mm-hmm. and really understanding those. Um, and so, uh, from there, once I started to see how all of that worked, it mm-hmm. made me realize more and more that this statement that I had heard 10 years ago by Lyle McDonald, when I used to chat with him was, um, it doesn't matter what advice you give your clients if they can't follow it, it's shit advice. And I was yeah. like, that really clicked in more like this. Why doesn't people, why don't people talk about psychology and behavior change mm-hmm. to get them to do the nutrition and training? Cause it's like, if your outcome is nutrition and training change, mm-hmm. how do you get them to do that stuff? And mm-hmm. not, not knowing that, you know, really confused me. So I, yeah, wanted to understand how to do all that and spend some time learning that, those aspects and now really practice it, do a lot of it and have spent, you know, three or four years since then, um, you know, practicing that stuff and refining it to a point that now I have kind of like a visualized process of how that all goes out. Yeah, that's um, impressive. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a degree of accountability and ownership that I think a lot of coaches lack in, I guess, seeing the, I guess for us, it's more of a, I, I know that I don't have the answer. And instead mm-hmm. of being egotistical or feeling insulted or, you know, having mm-hmm. that sort of complex about it where I'm just going to make up an answer or just give you something in a long jaded, long winded answer to make it sound like I'm smart. You've just mm-hmm. simply gone, I don't actually have the solution for this or the solution I do have is not enough. It's announced. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm not actually providing a tool that's going to help this person improve or change. And, yeah. you know, having worked with you myself, we've gone through that. And then from that, you know, we've gone and done subjects or I guess you'd say courses, extracurriculars together to learn further about that as well. Yeah. It's, something I think is missing a lot in our game where coaches are willing to say, I don't know, and I'm going to go pay a course or do some extra, extra work to get that answer. So at least in that scenario, again, I don't have that problem. Well, not so much you don't have the problem. You're always going to have those clients that have those problems, but more so that you've now got some tools to help them work through it. And then should the next problem come up that doesn't have a tool for, I can at least scaffold off that knowledge and try and find that next solution. Right. Yeah, I can't, I, I really can't take credit for doing it quickly. I was in, like, you know, like felt trapped by some of the stuff that was going on in that business where when I was expressing this to some of the other coaches, their responses were like, we're not psychologists, we're not meant to be addressing those things or whatever, mm-hmm. like you stick it to nutrition and training. So I I can't say that I did pivot and realized quickly, I, you know, gave shitty answers for a long time and it never yeah. sit, sat well with me to the point that I did pursue it. But yeah, I, I, I wish I was quicker on it and felt, you know, like um, the, the the need was there to uh, dive into it straight from the start. But yeah, it's definitely something uh, you have to be wanting to, you know, invest in yourself, understand when you don't understand something to seek out answers and find, upskill, you know, it's so yeah. it's been It's been, it's interesting to me because like, uh, you know, given the realm of coaching that I'm in now, when I tell people actually that my degree in my undergrad is in uh, behavioral science, majoring in clinical psychology, mm-hmm. they they fail to see the equivalence or I guess the um, the the usability of mm-hmm. that sort of topic, I guess, around what we do. Mm-hmm. And it blows my mind every time I have that conversation because the coaches that I speak to at work, you know, they get frustrated when a client doesn't do a check-in. I've got mm-hmm. clients that don't do check-ins yeah. uh, or fail to do their check-ins rather than being like, hey, you know, you're a POS of a client, like you're just not very good. We go through mm-hmm. the process of, you know, okay, so why isn't this working? What are you finding mm-hmm. hard about this? What isn't this not aligning with you? You know, we go through these things mm-hmm. because if I really want that person to succeed, not just turn out another client and another transformation of eight to 12 weeks, 
mm-hmm. want that person to be able to sustain and understand the value of what we're doing and what they'll be able to to achieve together, right, over yeah. a long period of time. Totally. And yeah, it's, it's mind-boggling to me that coaches fail to see the unique benefit that comes from understanding the human psyche. That's mm-hmm. literally, you know, whether I want to be a high-performance coach, which is obviously the realm that matter is going to go down, or I just simply want to have my clients sustain longevity of result, mm-hmm. being able to understand them as a person becomes important. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Um, like it, It's so important to be able to work with the person as well, like to be able to sit back and be flexible and say, look, I understand by this principle that we're trying to get X, Y, and Z happening. And if, you know, if my normal approach leads me down this path and we're coming unstuck with that, let's create another path to get to the same place. There's so much benefit in that. And that's one of the reasons why I'm still a big proponent for like flexible dieting and understand macros and calories and stuff like that. And also, you know, with with same with training programs being like super flexible on how we approach a training program because you know, if, if if you're looking for, you know, um, say something like quads to grow or whatever, like there's so many tools that we can hit the quads with to make them grow. So it's like, why not be flexible the same way that I am with those realms training and nutrition with behavioral psychology as well? Would you say, would you say in that sense, I guess it, it seems very similar to me, and I guess perhaps that's where I, I've even lent from um, yourself is you have more of a, like you have, you would have a system or a model but that model is quite fluid based on the person. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, totally. it's, it's very much like, you know, um, yeah. you know, like we, we both know you have a, a mum of three or two that also works a full-time job, having her a six day program of 80 to hundred sets of, you know, MRV mm-hmm. and pushing intensity one RAR probably yeah. not going to get done 75% of the time going to mm-hmm. develop learned hopelessness. And they're going to start to feel failure and start to shut down and feel terrible about themselves. Whereas yeah. we can flip that and go, you know, I understand this is what you want to do, but where are you now? Let's mm-hmm. do a three-day program. Let's absolutely F shit up three days a week. And you've got four days with the kids, the family. Don't worry about the gym. Mm-hmm. Would you say yeah. that's more of an approach that you kind of developed or, or lean into as totally. a coach? Yeah. So my program, the Vitality Script, is very much that. So when I first built it out, it was like this 12, 16-week modules of these components going through. And after the last three or four years of running it, now it's more some principles. So it's about eight or nine principles that I have, nine depending on how much nutritional guidance someone might need. Like they might have no literacy when it comes to that. So I spend a little bit more time on that. But about eight principles that I'm trying to take someone through to get them to move through proper behavior change. And all of that I recognize through really deep diving self-determination theory mm-hmm. to get to the point of really understanding in essence, like what is like the three key components of self-determination theory, which is autonomy, comp- uh, competence and relatedness. Mm-hmm. If you always tie everything back to that, you can move someone through those those stages to get them to the other side to maintain and stabilize behavior into the long term that they can see themselves, you know, working through. Um, and so figuring out that that's what I was really trying to do it meant it opened up the path for me to approach everyone from single moms to full families to athletes to you know um, some like coaches or whatever themselves so it's it really made it a lot easier to adapt myself to the people that i was working with rather than saying i only work with these people because i'm unwilling to adapt myself to anyone else um it makes it harder to market. It makes it harder to get clients and stuff like that because people don't see themselves in some of the representations of the people that I show. Yeah. But 
it's like I know personally and my clients know personally that I can help them out. And, you know, so it does end up winning out. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something that by knowing the principles of it, it just makes it so much more fluid. Yeah. So we've, um, we've kind of touched there on self-determination theory a couple of times now, you know, we both understand it. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's something I think that is definitely very important for people to understand because for me, one of my most frustrating or X, X, whatever the word you want to use, agitations, is when I see people misapply, misunderstand things like motivation, they'll attack people and be like, motivation's fleeting, it's discipline that builds it, and this gets a result. And yeah. you just end up with people failing to comprehend what motivation actually is in the sense that we understand yeah. self-determination theory and the motivational spectrum. Yeah, It's not as simple as just saying dichotomy, it's either motivation or discipline. You have it mm -hmm. or you don't. Like, get rid of this. Like, we don't want motivation. You want to have this instead. Mm -hmm. Silly equivalence to me, but that's because mm -hmm. I guess we have that bit more awareness. Mm -hmm. But when we're looking at self-determination theory, like a coach is trying to figure out how do I motivate my client? Mm -hmm. What do those three pillars mean? When we're looking at relatedness, competence, and autonomy, what are those actually saying? And why does that get a client a result? Yeah, that's uh that's such a great question. It's one of my like favorite things to talk about. So I'm glad <laughs> I definitely didn't know that. <laughs> um so for those that don't know what self-determination theory is, you can do some Googling and I'll provide some links and stuff like this afterwards to Ben so that he can put it up in the description or show notes or wherever this stuff's found. But essentially, uh um it's a, this meta theory essentially they took six different tiny mini theories and they combine them all into this meta theory of how we see people's um, motivations needs and wants play out and how we can influence those to get people to change their behavior so that their outcome is the new behaviors that we're looking to establish and maintain and then how to manipulate both intrinsic and external motivation so self-determination theory was founded by um Richard Ryan and Edward Desi is Desi and Ryan Desi and Ryan so it suggests basically that we are motivated by these three innate psychological needs which is autonomy competence and relatedness those are the three things that I spoke about before right and so Desi and Ryan developed this theory by taking the six mini theories and combining them all and we use it to help explain the motivations that we can help harness our optimal functioning or and, and well-being into the future right so these three uh, needs for self-determination theory to play out and where, what we see in human behavior is like we can essentially pull most things back and find at the core of it, it's autonomy, competence or relatedness that really drives those, uh, whatever it is that we're doing. So autonomy is basically the ability for us to be um, to have control over our own life and decisions. We all essentially seek that. It, and whether we seek it in all realms or we seek it in some realms is like highly uh, relevant as well because some people don't want to have autonomy over some of their decision making hence why they hire a coach and they may just want to follow a meal plan and a training program and stuff like that and say right i don't have enough mental capacity right now for myself to make these decisions so i want to, someone else to give me this stuff so that they have the autonomy still in other areas of their life and then others um, on the other side of that spectrum, want to know everything so that they can apply the autonomy themselves in a real life situation or being at the gym, figuring out as still seeing someone's on the leg press and being like, right, I know what my coach is trying to do. I can pick and choose a different exercise that would work for this, thus giving them some autonomy over that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's autonomy. Competence. It's kind of self-explanatory, but it's the desire to really feel uh, effective and capable in doing something. 
So if we don't feel competent in stuff, then we we move away from that because it essentially makes us feel like a failure. And like a failure is something that we trying to avoid a lot of. You know, we want repeated dopamine exposures for stuff to happen. And competence is a nice, easy way for us to do that. So practicing a something that we like doing or anything that we do essentially helps provide competence. Now, if it's stuff that we like, we get more sense of value out of that. So we get an enhanced experience. But it's not to say that we don't get anything from things that we don't enjoy. Being competent in stuff that we don't enjoy still provides us that sense of um, our basic psychological needs are being met, which is really important. It's a really key factor in, in coaching is being able to build someone's competence in stuff that they don't enjoy or don't like doing mm-hmm. to the point that they, again, they would come back to, you know, competence and, you know, autonomy. They don't have to seek out alter, alterations or uh, adjustments and changes and stuff like that in what they're doing so that they can feel, you know, competent again. They can mm-hmm. just and that it might not be something that they enjoy, but they can still be competent at doing that. Then lastly is relatedness. So this comes back down to like the psychological need of uh, being included in a group or being Mm -hmm. in. So we're social creatures. We really want to desire and be connected with others. So um, we, we value things that provide relatedness. Now that doesn't necessarily have to mean just family. A lot of people just have friendships that are as valuable, more valuable than like um, blood relations. So we can definitely have that and relatedness kind of opens up and allows us to understand that within those groups, there's going to be some need for us to want to feel uh, related to those people. And so those things, if we can, if we can focus on um, competence, relatedness, and autonomy as the three needs of everything that we're trying to do and kind of peel back the layers on whatever it is that's coming undone to see which one of those is being impacted, we can essentially address it from a foundational level instead of kind of a superficial level. Mm -hmm. And a nice example of that is a foundational level of autonomy would be right what we're doing here with you following a gym program that feels like whenever you go there, all the machines are that I've written for this program on um, are being occupied by other people. And because you don't have the knowledge, you don't know how to be autonomous in that decision-making period. So you feel uh, hopeless. And so because you're experiencing that, you don't like the gym, you don't enjoy it. So you don't really put in much effort and stuff like that. So however, if we gave you some autonomy and competence about this, if we helped you feel, understand that a leg press can be substituted for a bunch of other exercises. Um, and so pick and choose whatever's best and kind of give like a higher, uh, a priority list or, um, you know, like best to worst kind of like alterations or even just actions on what to do if you approach that. Finding a way to tie back to that means that we're going to find success in people being able to apply this long-term when we don't. And we just do something superficial. That could be just as simple as just saying like, right, maybe just like, you know, do some stretching or, you know, exercising around it or whatever until that machine's free for you to be able to do this so that you can follow my program. You're kind of giving them some autonomy, uh, some confidence, but you're not giving them much autonomy. So it's kind of a superficial fix on that. Um, and it really doesn't play out into like being a sustainable behavior to do because what are you going to do every time a machine's occupied that you need? You just wait. Yeah. Like that's not really enhancing your psychological needs. So if we don't understand those components, then we can't approach it from a foundational level or a kind of deeper principle, which means we basically create poor clients. You know, we, we're not helping anyone really. We're keeping their money and just having someone rely on us rather than letting them go. Yeah, it's uh, uh, like such a... <laughs> I hope I wasn't too rambly. 
No, that's like that. That in of itself is something that I think needs to be more understood by a lot of people. And I think to kind of even expand there from this um, is understanding that on, on top of that. So the the three pillars that we're talking about here are going to impact motivation mm-hmm. in all behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that people fail to comprehend. I'll explain a little bit on this further. What I mean is yeah. that people think like motivation or, you know, motivation is fleeting. I only have this one burst of energy and then I go uh, mm-hmm. do this action. I think we often mis- miscomprehend motivation for inspiration and fail mm-hmm. to understand that you are motivated on the degree of motivational spectrum at all times. You, whether it be something you want to do, a motivation, um, yeah. whether it be you know your intrinsic love for this, whether it just be that someone's giving you giving you an external value to why you probably should do it, like a doctor mm-hmm. with a health change. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that you're motivated on the spectrum, and mm-hmm. I think people fail to comprehend um, that it's not so much that motivation is terrible or that it's bad or it's fleeting. It's just the chances are that for the action you want to achieve, you potentially just don't have or haven't developed a more intrinsic motivational love for what you're about to do. And as we know in this uh, meta theory into the overall comprising thought Mm -hmm. is that the closer we can get someone from an external or very external regulation based um, perception or perspective and move them closer to that uh, intrinsic love, it's Mm -hmm. going to be a lot more sustained behavior. And I think mm-hmm. that's where people get things wrong when they're, you know, they're drilling into how bad motivation is. And it's all about discipline. Mm-hmm. Yes, discipline's great, but those who build discipline genuinely have a love of what they're doing that it becomes, uh, uh, I guess, an intuitive or mundane aspect. They just do it because it's like, I love this. I know this causes this result and this outcome and I achieve this. So yeah. understanding, I think, or if you can expand a little bit more on that as well, I think it'd be great in yeah, sure. further understanding how those three uh, concepts Apply them to the motivational spectrum. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so motivation, uh, and when we look at this theory, this is kind of their summer some summation of of motivation is essentially at the highest point we have our internal motivation, so our intrinsic motivation. You'll hear it often to it referred to, and basically that's our want or desire to do something, irregardless of anyone else's influence into something. Okay. So if, you, if you're if the stuff that you truly enjoy, if you think about it, intrinsic motivation is what drives you to participate in doing that. You get a reward or a sense of achievement, satisfaction, or whatever from those things, and so you're driven to do that over and over and over again. That's a really key uh, and important distinction because extrinsic motivation or external motivation are ones that we can be influenced by by either ourselves still, but separate to intrinsic drive or others, right? And so this is where it kind of gets a little bit tricky and I'll talk slow and give some examples and stuff like that to help everyone really follow it through. But we think of intrinsic motivation as kind of its self a separate thing. External motivation and internal motivation are coupled into what we call extrinsic motivation. So extrinsic motivation can be ranged from, like you were saying, a doctor saying, hey, you need to lose some body fat or your, your cholesterol is too high. We need to do some adjustments to that all the way to um, you knowing that doing something like this is good for you but you don't personally enjoy it to the point that it drives you to do it, right? It could be all the way to knowing that brushing your teeth stops you from getting, you know, plaque and uh, build up and stuff like that and gum disease or whatever. So between those, you can have both an internal drive to do stuff and an external drive. And there's a range of them always playing onto us, but that's extrinsic. We call that stuff externally motivating you. And generally we oscillate between the two. We have stuff 
uh, internally driving us towards the stuff that we enjoy. And when it's not stuff that we enjoy, we have these external drivers, these extrinsic drivers really pushing us towards doing stuff. What we found in the, the psychology is that intrinsic motivation is a super motivating way to, or uh, it keep, makes your energy feel really easy to do stuff when you're doing that. So imagine you've got some like 100 motivational points, right, that you have to spend each day to do things. The things that m drive your intrinsic motivation cost you nearly none, zero to one, maybe, a, you know, two or something like that. Whereas even something that you know is good for you, but you still aren't internally driven to do it, say brushing your teeth, or you know it's good for you, you just do it out of habit. But that still costs more energy than the stuff that is internally driven, and it, then it scales all the way across to, look, my doctor told me I need to lose weight. I don't really fucking care, but I know I should lose weight because of the health markers and stuff like that. And so, therefore, it's going to cost a lot more motivational energy and uh, you're going to spend more there doing that, even though you know what's good for you. We've got the answers to it. Um, and what we're left with at the end of the day determines, you know, how easy we found that day or how hard we found that day. So if we did a heap of stuff that's internally driving the intrinsic stuff, then we would find we'd have so much of that motivational energy left over at the end of the day. Our day felt great or we felt easy. Um, it felt recuperative. And when the days that we're juggling with just the extrinsic stuff, we tend to feel, you know, run down, tired or overwhelmed or you're stressed out um, and, you know, depleted on that energy spectrum. And most people kind of get pretty close to zero on, on you know, the, these kind of numbers and stuff. So when you think about that, what we're trying to do is find ways to give you more of that motivational energy across the day. So fill your day with more things that help you understand and move you towards costing you less on doing something. The more things that we can make it feel easier even if it's not as easy as intrinsic motivation easier is going to leave you with so much um feeling of high mental and high motivational energy that things feel achievable as opposed to overwhelming or you know out of reach and so how we do that is by optimizing and finding ways to adjust your external accountability into stuff that's internal that you can influence by understanding things like your values um, tying back to things like the, the three psychological needs, autonomy, relatedness, and confidence. So our values are kind of our internal drives, and they're the things that focus and build on our intrinsic motivation. So if, if uh, one of your values is compassion to, to people, right, and you do something that shows compassion and makes you feel like that, that feeling of compassion, you build that motivational energy and feel, you know, really, really great. If you can do that with external stuff, if you can feel compassion in things that you're doing and tie it with that, then you can make that activity go from, say, taking 10 motivational energy points to, you know, five or something like that. You know, we can we can make a big drop on something like that. An example of that would be I'm not brushing my teeth today just because I know it's good for me. I'm doing it because I want to have kids. And if I don't brush my teeth, I might not be around to see my kids because I might get gum disease or I don't want to spend ten thousand dollars on, you know, um, dentures or something like that. And so you, like, and I want to be compassionate to my partner so that they don't have to look after me or whatever it might be. But if we can tie in some compassion to that, knowing that compassion is a value that makes you feel great um, and is one of the ones that really drive your psychological needs, we can make everything else feel easier. And that's a massive key into getting su successful behavioral change because. It, it, we're not feeling like we're left over with nothing at the end of the end of the day, trying to take action on stuff that feels like it takes so much of our energy. Um, hopefully that explains it. Hopefully that. Yeah, no, 
Great. Like that, that gives us so much more to, to talk about. That's why like I, I enjoy having more of like a, a conversational style con- like mm. conversation rather than like a scribed interview because, you know, for people like us, this shit's a piece of piss. Mm. I'm, I'm going to say my, my language, but, you know, I swear on here. So it's it's understandable to us, but having people mm. be able to comprehend more in detail, like, you know, as I try to take in, I'm a very subjective learner. So, you know, an easy example, like I, when I try to relate this to people is like, yes, we want you to be as intrinsic, intrinsic as possible. The, mm-hmm. the funny thing I find is when people misunderstand this is, uh, you know, I have a love of competing. Mm-hmm. The second that your love of training, like let's say bodybuilding, a lot of my audience are bodybuilders or, or trainers. When we say bodybuilding and, you know, you love training, you love the dieting, you love all that aspect. The second it becomes a staged com- competition, mm-hmm. you're now taking that and making it a sort of external motivation though you love competing, there's mm-hmm. now a sense of a reward provided by someone else. So that now becomes a more external uh, introspective regulation. So really? in essence, a simple version of that is saying, I love training. I love dieting. I love pushing myself. I love finding my mm-hmm. extremes. Mm-hmm. The competitive side, though it's still a very big part of me, mm-hmm. is now an external regulator because it's come from something outside of myself that is providing that validation or that that sense of success or dopamine or reward, right? So that that becomes, I guess, an easy comprehension to understand is that the training yeah. side, the love of dieting, that love of intensity, mm. that's your intrinsic motivation. That's what you're going for. Yeah, mm. winning a pro card, all sort of stuff. But once it becomes something outside of that, well, now you've entered the realm of external motivation. Yeah, yeah. And I like to kind of use the analogy of like um, the point system and think that really helps some people understand how much of an influence these two mm-hmm different experiences can have. So um, say we have 100 points on both internal and external stuff. So at all times, we're going through these oscillations of internal and external stuff. Um, And so if you're really driven by something, if you really love something that the amount of points that you got left over on your internal stuff is really high at the end of the day, um, and you might not have um, too much taken away, chipped away from you from the external stuff. When you have a reason to, you know, be held to a date and stuff like that, it, you know, it provides extra external accountability with what's going on there. What happens um, for most people is they don't realize this. And so their internal um, amount of, you know, energy that they've got or, you know, like the money that the motivational money that they've got left over they're, they're missing half the, the equation because they've got nothing that drives them from that. They don't realize to seek out those things to fill their life with that stuff around it to make it, to build that a lot more. So they're, they're like you cut in half the amount of motivation that they can feel from something because of how they're viewing it or how people have made them understand it or just the misunderstandings that people have around motivation when they describe this stuff. It, they, we, most people conflate the two or they separate ideas or, they reduce it down and miss out on such of the like some really important aspects here. And so if you've only got external accountability to, to foster you along and you lose that competition date or say the thing changes, then you lose out on all these motivational points and take away a lot of, you know, like things that would drive you. And so you can have some massive impacts to that cost based on someone, that thing being there or someone telling you to do those things. If those things disappear, you can have a huge amount of that um, number just disappear straight away. The cool thing with intrinsic motivation is once you've fostered it and you understand where it comes from and where to fill yourself up from it, you will never go below that amount. Kind of. And so knowing that means like you can f- like easily cheese your life to get more motivation or feel more 
able to do things, uh, which makes the whole process of behavior change so much easier rather than only relying on stuff that's external, only relying on something like a GP or a coach or something like that telling you to do those things when really you don't really care for it. If you can find a way to foster both, then you're unstoppable. Yeah, again, I think it's an interesting miss by a lot of people as you sort of touched on there that we look at it as if like you're not supposed to have motivation. Like is that really common quote of like discipline over motivation that wins the game and Mm -hmm. whatever cliche you want to throw there. Mm -hmm. But the reality is we're trying to build or at least foster and include the benefits of the external motivation that is, you know, potentially accountability to a coach, to someone Mm -hmm. like yourself, if you've never Mm -hmm. done this sort of stuff before, but then Mm -hmm. tied it into the values that you have as a person and what you love doing, which might be, you know, I want to spend time with my family. I I love spending time with my family, but if I'm not well and I'm sick and I die or Mm. I'm, you know, incapacitated from being so unwell, well, then I'm not spending time with my family and seeing them grow and become better people. So now we're benefiting and combining the power of both of them and saying, well, you know, I've got to coach someone I'm accountable to that's going to teach me how to do these things. Mm -hmm. I don't like it, but Mm -hmm. along the way, I'm learning how to better take care of myself and still include food that I like. And, you know, basically I'm just starting our next ramble onto baby change. But, but from that, then you've got those internal, those internal locusts, I guess, that become, I love being around my family. And if I'm dead, I'm obviously not around my family. So I've got both things that help and combine. For sure. Yeah. Like, and that aspect is so powerful like understanding like that is so powerful that it can literally like facilitate some of the the greatest behavioral changes knowing that and i think this is where so many people get caught up in it is because they either see the shit that's repeated on instagram and social media or whatever of this concept of discipline over over motivation or they, they they completely miss it you know and don't think that um anything outside of training or exercise or activity or nutrition or like those things could be a motivation family is so fucking powerful like that you can that one that i work with all my clients on because most of them are uh, mothers or women um and so you know that that relationship is one that we if we can tear everything to be from a lens that it how it impacts family and um you know the the flow on effects you can become all of a sudden really driven to want to do those things because of your own internal value for family and how much you care about them. It doesn't have to be around training. Now, obviously, we're talking to a very different crowd here, being the, mm-hmm. the, the matter crowd. We've got a lot of high-performing people, so they're lucky in that they have may have multiple of these really high-driving um, you know, like outlets for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, can can make it easier to pivot and switch, but it also can make it easier to get overwhelmed by things as well because it's like family is really important to me, but so is this, and so I don't mm-hmm. know how to balance this, and so one gives, um, and you know you can lose a heap of psychological needs from that and burn yourself out as well, which we can come in and talk about in a little bit. But I want to talk back a little as well about this concept of discipline over motivation. Mm-hmm. Please, what most people are forgetting uh, as well as people who are disciplined have built internal motivation to get to yes. a point that they sustain that discipline. It just doesn't feel like they are, but yes. they don't. That's exactly what they are. They're saying like, is discipline better or motivation? What they really mean is like, I have been internally disciplined, like motivated to do this behavior. Um, you know, do I have to be externally motivated to do it? No, I don't. So therefore, you know, being dis- disciplined and doing something makes it easier what they're forgetting is the whole process in which they were first learning that thing, yes. something that drove them to be more internally motivated towards it. They just didn't, I bet you they have no idea. They have probably 
you know, like the psychological comprehension of a, like a rock. So they probably have no idea of what they're actually doing. Mm-hmm. And therefore they're just saying, right, I'm disciplined because I do this stuff all the time. You should be too, rather than isolating everyone like that and saying mm-hmm. people that don't have discipline, uh, you know, just bound for failure, recognizing that you've built this internal motivation to get to a point that it's just so easy to sustain and maintain, which it is, it 100% mm-hmm. is. But the external stuff helps. Like it's yep. how you can you can literally foster someone's want to change with external motivation so quickly. Most people call it motivation. You you said it before. It's actually inspiration. So and that could be something where you listen to I don't know uh, who do I love listening to Arnie or um, you know like any of those inspirational videos that you see on YouTube or whatever. Mm-hmm. Those uh, and you can um, yeah you can feel really inspired to do something and that is cheap free external motivation to want to do stuff. Now, what happens when you stop listening to it? Well, we forget the words, the music stops playing. And so like that feeling slowly tanks, but like we can foster a change really, really quickly by relying on something like that for a shorter period of time and slowly build it towards our own intrinsic motivation. So we can go back and forth. And that's exactly what I do with all my clients. So we find ways to get the external motivation to pull the trigger on stuff, to feel excited for stuff and slowly convert it into a way that fosters their internal motivation. So as that drops off, they get this increase in internal motivation. It doesn't feel as powerful, but it's it's so resilient that it doesn't break really quickly. Um, and so that means like if you, even if you, you know, stop your streak on going to the gym or you stop your streak on brushing your teeth as an example, uh, and say you miss a day or you, you know, don't go to the gym, you know, for a few days or something like that you don't feel crap and feel like this monumental effort in starting again. It feels a little bit of effort, but it's so much easier than like mm-hmm. only having external motivation, which means like when you go to do something again, you have to, you, everything has to line up. The stars have to line up. Saturn has to be in retrograde. You have to make sure that you have enough energy to want to start on Monday. We think categorically. So we're like, right, I'm not going to start again on Thursday. I'll wait again till Monday. I'll do all these fuck up behaviors until between now and then. And all of these things just to make it like feel like you can do it because it feels intense. And we can drop that right down and do those other aspects by building that intrinsic motivation and dropping the other stuff, which is all the things I love doing. And I think you kind of touched on a really interesting point there that, um, you know, the entire fucking chat's an interesting point, to be honest. But I want to kind of go back there. And it's something that I find quite almost arrogant bordering on ignorant if not negligent is mm-hmm. when we have these coaches talk about things like you know uh, discipline over motivation if you will is mm-hmm. most of the time i find those people uh and it's not a fault of their own it's a personality trait is that they're highly conscientious and probably to a degree highly neurotic so mm-hmm. we're actually seeing that they're very internally emotionally concerned with negative emotion that they don't do the thing and they're also mm-hmm. very task orientated so it's aligning for them to be very driven to not fail and achieve that certain outcome so it's mm-hmm. been to a point where they're like i this just becomes easy to me i'm second nature obsessed with this mm-hmm. which to me is is a, a lack of or lapse of judgment or a lapse of i guess awareness mm-hmm. i am not uh disciplined at taking care of my car I do the bare minimum to make sure it runs and it's healthy and I can I can use it for a long period of time. I'm not a car guy. So I'm not every Sunday out giving it a wax and shine, hitting it with the the sham and all that sort of jazz. Like I'll do the what needs to get done to keep it functioning and that's yeah. it. Now yeah. I have no interest in cars. So mm-hmm. if a mechanic was to me, oh, it's discipline over motivation, you should be taking care. I'd call him an F wit. Like I'd be like, mate, yeah. shut the fuck up. I don't care. Mm-hmm. So it's it's also understanding that if you've managed to foster interest in something or you've found in the way mm-hmm. I kind of look at exposure to certain things is we have curiosity, interest, passion, purpose. 
if you're if you've managed across your time to find the thing that you are most passionate about that has become to a degree the purpose of why you're here which is for most coaches our very existence and what we're trying mm-hmm. to achieve you can't yeah. compare that to someone who's just starting out on behavior change or you know just wants to be a prep client while they also run a six-figure business or they're a tradie or they're you know want a body composition change the two mm-hmm. aren't synonymous we can't have that equivalence there because it's unfair they have their passions, which might be, I'm a computer programmer that runs a software engineering company that makes mm-hmm. literally seven figures. My concern mm-hmm. is I want to be less fat and be able mm-hmm. to look fucking hot for my wife or my husband and basically have good sex. Mm-hmm. That is very different to the person's like, I want to be 3% body fat on stage, achieve mm-hmm. a fucking four, you know, 400% lift uh, against body weight on a platform mm-hmm. meet, whatever. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very misconcept by people. We have mm-hmm. our narrow niche of, of passions and excitements bordering on hyper obsessive, especially for someone like myself, I do very few things. I just do them really well, or I try Mm -hmm. to do them really well. Mm -hmm. And I think that gets missed by people when we have this conversation of like motivation versus discipline. Like you should just want to do it. It's good for you. Mm -hmm. Tell me how often you go take care of your car. Tell me how often you want to go, I don't know, see your grandparents. Like Mm -hmm. you don't want to most of the time. That Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that, you know, it's motivation versus discipline. It's just Mm -hmm. you found things you're interested in Mm -hmm. versus something that some people aren't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and uh, that's just like human human biases. Hey, it's like really understanding that we're blinded by our perspectives on things and our amount of information and stuff like that that we've consumed, and we assume everyone else has consumed similar amounts of information. Yeah. All the time. So when we when we approach thing something, we don't approach it from what's their perspective. We approach it on why doesn't their perspective match my perspective through my experience, and <laughs> just end up you know, butting heads or whatever. Um, yeah, it's definitely a very big issue in the industry at the moment. I just, especially to me, it's like the, the biggest thing is is when it's like, you know, I will, one thing I've always said is I will never judge someone for not wanting to be 120 kilos of 3% body fat on stage. Like mm-hmm. that is my goal. That's what I want to do. I have mm-hmm. no right to judge someone that doesn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. That's to- like fine. You know, inversely, I would hope or appreciate that people don't want to judge me for that. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. I'm not then going to you know, recognize that my passions are very few things done really well at an extreme over a course of time. I'm going to get better and better versus mm-hmm. someone who is coming to me for help, wanting to improve body comp or just, you know, I don't understand how to get, I keep training, not getting a result and I want to look a certain way or eventually maybe get to a stage. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. You know, this is going to take time. And again, this will, will move in here to kind of like behavior change and lifestyle modification. But mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like it's, it's an important aspect for people to comprehend is, we don't all share the same interests. We don't all share the same passions or the purpose to why we're here, our sense of values, our internal motivators, like all these things as a coach, we have to be aware of when putting out content, talking to people, you know, understanding that fair enough, if you're talking to your audience, great. But mm-hmm. if you're just simply saying, you're not disciplined, you're a piece of shit, you're not building this because you know mm-hmm. you don't want it bad enough, they mm-hmm. probably don't want it bad enough. You're right. That's a, probably a fair assumption. They're simply mm-hmm. doing it because they've been told they have to. And that's your job now to help them build that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think uh, a sign of a good coach is not pushing your perspective on them to get them to do the things that you think they should be doing, rather hearing what they're after and adjusting yourself to be able to help them get there. Yeah, agreed. Completely agree. Obviously, like you know, we're going to have some very shared thoughts and values here in this chat. But yeah, I think it's definitely an important aspect to understand. Is you know, fair enough. I think clients. If we market in a certain way, if we're obviously putting out content or certain thing or results in a certain way, we're going to draw the attention of people who want a similar result. And you know, part of the model will be, look, these are the requirements to get there. Uh, mm-hmm. I think for me, a big thing that I try to push is I use 
lifestyle modification behavior change to get to a point where prep is possible because mm-hmm. I will not prep someone that hasn't had, you know, three to six months of consistent behavioral success in yeah. the intricacies that are required to then land a successful prep. Um, yeah. And I think that's something to comprehend for people is that it's not just, oh, you signed up for prep, let's start. It's, yeah. you know, it's building up that quality. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. The prep before the prep, I guess. I think it's just the lifestyle life. before the prep, right? Like totally. just yeah. get to that point where you can actually sustain. I think that's an, an important part that people miss. It's not me going, you know, these are the things you will do mm-hmm. because, you know, if you don't, you don't want it bad enough. It's okay. I need you to understand that these are the things required and we're going to take time to get there. Then we pull yeah. the trigger. Um, yeah. And yeah, I just think a lot, of, a lot of coaches kind of need to understand that, if you will. Yeah. That, you know, sure. someone someone wants to prep. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. they're as obsessed with prep as you are or obsessed mm-hmm. with winning as you are or obsessed with body composition as you are or knowing the intricacies yeah. of drug protocols and body composition and beta oxidation. It's just not as intricate to them. They just want to be told or, you know, this looks fun. Let's yeah. try it out. Let's see if I can do it. So, yeah, I think it's just an important aspect for, you know, there's going to be a lot of coaches that listen to this that I think pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we've kind of moved there from, you know, we've got to, you know, motivation and and learning little bits about behavior change and understanding self-determination and getting that that mm-hmm. sense of autonomy and uh, in, uh, internal motivation. Uh, mm-hmm. Bloody hell. Intrinsic yeah. motivation. Yeah. Nailed it. Okay. Um mm-hmm. Let's move forward a bit into, you know, where we kind of overlap in that behavior change realm, that acceptance realm, and kind of where things we we both use them in our own ways of coaching. Yeah, totally. As I've sort of stated just there, I use it for even for my general population clients that don't want, you know, to get on stage, which is a lot of the people I work with anyway. Yeah. I still use it in a way that we start to build foundational habits and we start to build foundational success systems. Mm-hmm. And then for the ones who do prep it's going from that into that next level. It's kind of shifting gears from fifth to sixth or fourth to fifth, and then really sending it, you know, that next level of driving or for yeah. the general person, it's that, that level of like, you know, you think it's going to be chicken and broccoli. How about we just start getting more protein and veg on your plate? And, you yeah. know, we start getting more water and things like that. Totally. This is going to be a very overlapping sort of sense for us. I think is an important aspect again, that coaches miss and a lot of people fail to understand that it's not just simply you're either born with this knowledge or you're not, or, you know, it's, you know, as a client, you either have it or you don't, or, you know, you can't work with a coach until you have the foundations or the basics, right? Mm-hmm. Behavior change is literally us identifying that people have a desire or want to change. Mm-hmm. And there is simply a gap between what they know and what they want to do and potentially that motivation to do it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we're trying to use the least effective dose or the least effective resistance to help that change occur. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and we've kind of touched on it a little bit before we spoke about some act stuff. Um, so we, I'll talk on that then as well. But we also did uh, together some motivational interviewing um, workshops mm-hmm. and um, courses by uh, Gary Mendoza, brilliant, mm-hmm. brilliant um, lecturer. If you ever get a chance to do one of Gary's stuff, uh, mm-hmm. go check it out. Um, but for those who are unfamiliar, and I'll just give some brief background into act. ACT is uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. So this was one that was developed back in the 80s, uh, which is kind of gaining popularity now, but it was bar- uh, developed by Stephen Hayes, Kelly Wilson, and Kirk Strosel. Oh, I always stuff that name out, Kirk Strosel. Um, they're brilliant, brilliant people, but essentially what we call this is the third wave of psychology. So CBT being the initial second wave of that, and then there was a few of them like, oh man, 
it's like social learning theory and stuff like that that was kind of part of that first wave so we've, we've moved beyond thinking like um you know if you someone bashes a doll in front of you you're going to mimic and do that behavior for the rest of your life kind of thing oh, yeah <laughs> um to we then went to cognitive uh, behavior theory which is basically uh, i spoke about before but like the idea that our negative experiences make us do and want to move away from things or develop towards things and how they approach treating that i feel and didn't work for me when i went through therapy and stuff like that and i don't feel a lot of my clients respond well to it because it kind of builds the context of what's going on around the the stuff in your head so a nice example of that is if i say don't think about elephants you think about elephants right and the, the negative aspect is like every time you think of elephants you're doing the wrong thing therefore i should not think about that thing mm-hmm. um and so we that doesn't work right it's the same as you maybe in that moment but eventually you'll think about elephants you'll see an elephant you'll think about elephants you'll hear an elephant and all of a sudden you fail and that's where cognitive behavioral therapy to me is limited in its approach because it kind of fosters the thing that we're trying to adjust and change. And what where I found really high success with uh, acceptance commitment therapy was the idea that how about instead of going through all the grieving stages to get to a point of acceptance at the end for something that we've experienced, how about we just accept that it's a part of who we are now that changes our identity for one and it means that we can just not have to... F- build up or give uh context mental context mental space to the things that have happened to us um to to move on to let go essentially and this concept of letting go is like a it's it's hard until you experience it and i've got some tips and tricks we can talk about later but um it's something that we naturally do with things and like it's that sense of relief or the sense of like um you know yeah relief i guess or satisfaction of not feeling a particular way in re- in response to something but i said so anyway t- circling back sorry acceptance commitment therapy mm-hmm. um they developed that because uh it was a, they wanted an alternative to that cognitive behavioral therapy that was going on at the time um and really i found so much success in trying to just practice acceptance for shit that's gone on in my life rather than saying how do I deal with that stuff to get to a point where I battle it? And every time I battled it, it kind of just gave context to it and made it hang around for ages. Mm-hmm. And um, so feeling that and seeing that and getting exposed to that, I decided to get some do some courses in it. We've both done some courses. Russ Harris is um, the, the guy that runs the courses that we've both done. Brilliant, brilliant lecturer. Um, so him and Gary, if you ever get a chance to do either of those, mm-hmm. throw yourself into it and do it. Um, but along with acceptance commitment therapy, the foster behavior change, we were talking about some motivational stuff before we both do motivational interviewing and I just spoke about that. So that's, um, um, Miller and Miller and Rolnick, Miller and Rolnick, they, Mm -hmm. they around the same time in the eighties, they both did this and they fostered it, uh, for alcoholism, trying to get people to stop with alcoholism and smoking, smoking cessation. And so they found it was really, really, um, positive results out of doing it that blew most people away. Um, and motivational interviewing is kind of a collaborative conversation that we're having with someone um, that is a technically a counseling style that we can uh, elicit and really strengthen someone's motivation and commitment to themselves to actually change. Um, and which is really important because when we're talking about behavior change, it's if I were just to say, look, like we know that the end behavior of you wanting to get shredded is like um, eating like a bodybuilder. Let's just start eating like a bodybuilder now. If I tell you to do that, even though if you know it's the right thing, there's less want for you to do that because mm-hmm. it's not it's not come from yourself. 
And so having an understanding on how to approach ACT as well as motivational interviewing, we can get people to really understand what it is that they want, use their own language to kind of create that reason for change and make them facilitate it. And these changes, the approach to doing stuff like that is so much higher than if you just give someone the idea of Mm -hmm. doing something, right? Like it it becomes an external motivator again and it drops off. This is a way to foster internal intrinsic motivation, that stuff that we're talking about before. And so this is how you can essentially ebb and flow the two different times Mm -hmm. by by using those two. Um, And it's really both of them are crucial to really getting people to understand the insights, the the factors that really underlie and drive our want and need for change. So if we can understand like the role of motivation, we can teach the ability around competence, relatedness, autonomy Um, with act and motivational interviewing. We can really pull things back, find out how to build up their own want to do something and tie it back into those areas of autonomy, competence and relatedness which creates this like 3D concept of why something matters to them rather than just saying, look, I know that it kind of matters. I'm just going to do it because someone's told me. And so this is, you're literally giving someone the free ability to build their intrinsic motivation and become resilient to, you know, like breaking habits or resilient to, um, you know, not maintaining streaks on, on consistencies and stuff like that, you know, because it doesn't matter. We don't need the streak of a consistent behavior to facilitate a, a motivation is kind of a weaker motivation. You've got the internal drive, that intrinsic motivation to want to do something. Even if you stuffed up that streak for a week and say you chose to not go, the want to return is so much little, mm-hmm. so, is way li- more little, sorry, compared to when we make it external, where we gave that example before where it feels really high. So really identifying those barriers, knowing how to uh, give that give that information to people and pull that stuff out of them is really what develops and defines how I approach except uh, behavioral change. Yeah. I mean, so many points, so many points. This is what I think is missed by a lot of people when I tell them why I think even clinical psych, whether I, whether I dive further down into my master's or my post-grad into things like more performance psychology based Mm. sports psychology based stuff, even with that realm, having these concepts understood and having this, this, capability to engage with the client in this manner, I think is so much more important. Like, yep, in a perfect marketing sense, we get the client we want warm and ready. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that we've tried to really perfect at matter in the way that we engage with clients at the at the consult level is that they're mm-hmm. not coming to us in a fresh, cold state where I've got to try and, you know, convince them to sign up. But it's more so having a discussion or discourse and a relationship building phase where I'm getting them as excited as I am. And mm-hmm. I think getting them like, you know, we go through the open-ended questions, the affirmations, reflections, and summaries. You get use ors. We're using, mm-hmm. we're looking for that change talk that's going to facilitate that they're ready to actually achieve this. And mm-hmm. if they aren't using that, okay, we touch back on things like, you know, we use some of those skills from motivational interviewing, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, why is this so important to you? Give this a number to me. What does it mean to you? What would happen if you didn't achieve this? What does failure look like or feel like to, to you? What does that success mm-hmm. look like? And it's worded in ways where it doesn't seem like a script. Because one thing yeah. I... One thing I've struggled to see successful, having done you know seven years of sales now, well, bordering on eight or nine years actually, is I struggle to see the success of of sales templates when people aren't passionate about that template or they're not passionate about the, the topic or the conversation. And we had yeah. this on another to- uh, podcast we were on um, last week for Matter uh, a couple of weeks ago around sales and 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 the the sign up process. I think it's it's really important to understand this that when you can come in and meet this person and you get them even in a consult phase, if you get them to the point where they understand 
They will build a, comp- a confidence. They will feel uh, related to other people within your network and they will feel uh, autonomous in their decisions. It's not just, I say you do, but it's a, re- a two-way relationship. It's a, a bilateral relationship here that we're going to work on. That in and of itself is going to help build clients feel positive, successful. They're going to achieve a result. They want to be part of it. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that's missed a lot by people is that if, if I just have the sales script, I can manipulate them. Why would yeah. you want to manipulate a client you're trying to help? Why would you look at like, you know, we have, even in social psychology, we have sales tactics that we've talked about um, that we study. Sorry. Yeah. They, they talk about the foot in the door technique or the lowest hanging fruit or, um, you know, things that can, um, what do we call it? The, uh, the minimum buy-in um, to try and get someone to buy bigger. Mm-hmm. All these things that just basically end up being manipulative tactics. Mm-hmm. But to me, don't even build the sustainable client result anyway. So they're not mm-hmm. going to stay. I would much rather have these tools at my disposal and this relationship with my client where we're mm-hmm. going to build long-term trust, relatedness, excitement, you know, mm-hmm. motivation. They're going to feel happy. They're going to feel achievable. They're going to feel like they've succeeded, uh, achieved something and they're successful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of coaches or like, you know, some of the lesser, I don't want to say quality. I don't, I don't know what the word to use. I guess lesser quality, lower quality, like marketing business courses will kind of push is that, just get you know ten thousand people through your system. If you sell with like one of them and use this script, good for you. Mm-hmm. I feel like for you know say ourselves, where we understand the point that is we're trying to change someone's life. Mm-hmm. That's going to be more exciting in the interview. That's going to be you know mm-hmm. that motivational interview and use those skills and those abilities. Mm-hmm. That's our positive emotion. That's our positive sense of success. Yeah, that totally. should be that. That's a bigger thing I think that coaches need to understand. It's not just about having a sales script. It's about that understanding of using motivational language to help the client see that we're going to achieve a result together. It's not just going to be this boring one-way dictatorship that you just have to say, shut up and do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I like really using the both of those skills has so many domains that it falls into as well, you know, from those early conversations through to your relationship from getting them to their level of education and, you know, moving through those stages to the point that you want to have when you f- finish working with them at mm-hmm. the an educated level of whatever it is that they're looking for as well. You know, we can foster and facilitate both of, using both of those skills all across the, you know, the spectrum. It's not like you're just stuck doing a skeleton or scripted things that you have to follow, you know, step-by-step on things. Mm-hmm. And I guess yeah. something I want, I want to uh, kind of quickly touch back on is, is having that, you know, my degree is literally in CBT. It's currently, mm-hmm. that's where the realm of clinical psych focuses. Yeah. And like you, something that I found more positive about it, ACT as a model is it doesn't, it's not so much about letting you linger in the trauma or problem that you have. It's about trying to build what we call psychological flexibility and finding different ways or different tools to overcome a, mm-hmm. an anxious experience, a bad situation, identifying the negative thoughts that you're having and being mm-hmm. able to use different tools to get through it, to take yourself towards the outcome you want to have. Whereas yeah. I find a lot of time when I talk to people, especially now, I guess, in this very liberalized form of psychology that seems to be going on, it's a lot of trauma identification, but not progressive facilitation. It just <laughs> seems to be like, yeah, let's talk about it and identify it. We're going to sit here. You're, yeah. you're valid because this happened to you and this is okay. Let's kind of like almost embellish, like we're going to allow mm-hmm. this to be us as opposed to like, yeah, sure. This sucked. It happened. Let's move out of it. Let's progress forward in life and become something greater than what we are. Whereas yeah. I think with, with act, 
and the sense of psychological flexibility and the tools that we work on, like values, um, being able to adjust to certain things and being able to use these acceptance strategies, that mm. ends up being a lot more facilitating of progress and ends yeah, up sure. actually seeing change, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, very, very much so. And uh, I think it also just frees up so much time. Like if you look at the CBT strategies for things, there's so much time spent even before you get to that point of acceptance. Mm. And so like when, when you practice something like ACT, you eliminate all that time, you free up all that time, you can spend more time on that transition from accepting of whatever they've gone through into the next mm-hmm. action or moment or experience or whatever it is that they're going through. You, you, you know, you get a hundredfold increase on on that because that's what the behavior changes. It's not all the shit that happened beforehand and working through those aspects, rather it's recognizing that there's always going to be some some aspects of things that linger and we can't be who we were before something ever happened. So like everything that you're trying to do about minimizing or getting exposed to things or whatever the case may, might be on that or strategizing on ways to defeat those thoughts and stuff, what happens with that is you just you know build up more and more context on things and you spend you know you waste time on that whereas the other aspect is we're trying to you know improve on like uh, help someone's with behavior change so if you just focus on the behavior change aspect you get them to move through that a lot more and you're not facilitating or fostering the experiences that happened beforehand which they're struggling with in in those contexts as well um that's pro- yeah one of the reasons why i really i find it super beneficial yeah, yeah, I think it's definitely a um a powerful tool for coaches to learn wherever they can get their hands on it and go study it or at least review it, look into it, and just mm-hmm. add it to the repertoire of skills. Like you know, we we focus so heavily, and I guess this is kind of a really easy way to wrap up on the psychological aspect of coaching is, mm-hmm. you know, we focus so heavily and we see these like these strange dichotomies of um aggression towards education in the sense that like you have to study nutrition or like if you even remotely talk about protein you have to study nutrition or you know no it's more about conditioning and this sort of training protocol and like we have these two camps for some reason yet in the model we kind of facilitate or the model that i kind of push is that it's more of a triad and that we also have psychology up here as well if we have nutrition and training you're completely missing if you're fixed here you're missing the overarching concept of both of those things, which is psychology and making you do those behaviors or, you know, do both of those things. Um, And I think it's such a powerful aspect that coaches, any coach listening to this, need to wrap their their head around that. It's not go do another nutrition course, go do another, you know, upskilled kettlebell class or go to, you know, Mm -hmm. those things are great. Maybe Mm -hmm. there's a lot more that you're going to get for your clients as a result Mm -hmm. from understanding a few more of these concepts and improving your actual coaching skill, the soft skills mm-hmm. of coaching, than mm-hmm. just, oh, but I can put you through a boxer size class or I can drill you with my SNC, my conditioning. Mm-hmm. I can, you know, modify your macros and give you a meal plan. Mm-hmm. Those things are great. But the overarching thing that's missing in, I think, a lot of coaching perceptions is mm-hmm. how psychology plays its role. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like the triangle analogy. Um, the one I constantly use with clients is more of a, um like a house building analogy it's like psychology is the foundation of building a house and if you the nutrition and the training is like the aesthetic of the house or the brands that you're using like it doesn't matter how you design the house or what you want it to look like inside or what brands of products you buy if you put a foundation down you've got none of that shit matters um and i like to circle back and kind of keep thinking about that 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 quote from lyle mcdonald really just sits with me and 
that's kind of my first principle on everything. It's like, what can I do to help the person do something better and move forward from it rather than trying to meet them where they're not at? Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. We, I think that, that's a, that's a really powerful point. I think that a lot of coaches need to understand is that where a lot of the time, again, clients aren't us. They're not in our love of what we do. They aren't in their, our obsession of what we do. They aren't bodybuilders, elite athletes, elite performers. They're just simply clients mm-hmm. that want to do something the the thing that I find most powerful that gives me the most sense of joy is being able to psychologically be flexible in my language and how I talk to a client, meet them where they are and watch them raise up to a standard or meet me at my standard or get to that point where they're you know much higher, scaffold the base knowledge they have and use that um Dostoevsky? No, it's not Dostoevsky. Um oh God, the Jesus this is gonna kill me now. Uh, Russian developmental psychologist. Um, oh man, that's going to frustrate shit out of me. Basically, developed the concept of education around scaffolding and teaching off the concept you've already learned and the skills you've already learned. This is going to frustrate shit out of me. But basically, the point being is that we meet someone where they are and then use what they know to then scaffold to where we want them to be instead mm-hmm. of being like, hey, I'm up here. You should be at my level. And I think mm-hmm. that's a, you know, learning to be at the client's level and facilitate change and help them get to that point is much more rewarding than just being like, you're a dick if you're not here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's like a, a perfect segue into talking about some of the other components that really facilitate coaching outside of just the behavior change stuff, <clears throat> being the nutrition training, sleep, stress management, all those aspects. Yeah, and I guess that is a, a really easy way then for us to kind of get into, well, you know, first and foremost, you were a body composition coach, you've done body composition coaching, you've done, you know, physique preps in the past and things like that. And even still to this day, the, the way you work with uh, women, females, mothers, and men is that you're still trying to, or a lot of the time, achieve body compositional change, even if it's not the language they use. We both know that probably the outcome they're wanting is body compositional change or, you know, a sense of more internal satisfaction with how they look and, you know, the reason why. But it's, it's an important thing, I think, to understand that there are so many tools to body composition. Sorry, the screen's rocking there. There's so many tools to body composition change that, you know, and we were kind of talking off camera. Mm-hmm. It can go from, you know, the, the basics of body composition coaching will get you so far. And I think a lot of people think that the extreme end of, say, bodybuilding, body compositional behaviors is what everyone needs and it's what kind of holds them off getting into it. Whereas, you know, yourself and me, we both know that minimum effective change or lowest hanging fruits or least resistant behavior is going to get a massive bang for buck and buy-in. Mm-hmm. But it's just like that that concept I think people miss or don't grasp in, in body compositional change is that starting small and moving forward. And I think there's so many things there we can dive into um, and basically just take that away. Yeah. It just uh, struck me who I think that was. You were talking about uh, Lev Vygotsky, right? Yeah, Vygotsky. Yeah, yes. Yeah, Vygotsky. Yeah. Not Dostoevsky, Vygotsky. Yeah, I just I was like doff doff. I was trying to think of all the doffs I knew, but no. Um, anyway, yeah. So uh, I think for me, I, I can talk about the catalyst moment, which made me realize that so many other things really played into the role of outcomes for body composition. Was back in 2016, I was reading a study by um, well, it was a 2010 study on sleep restriction um, mm-hmm. by Arlet. I can never pronounce those Swedish guys. Nedulachevs? I can't. I'll, I'll find it and I'll link it. <laughs> I'm going to um, butcher that if I try, so I'm not even going to. I always think of Alit study and I can't ever say his last name. Poor guy. Um, 
which basically was a sleep restriction study for over 14 days where they had 10 overweight participants. So we'll talk a little bit later about statistical analysis and um, review and understanding the study in a moment. But 14-day period, 10 overweight uh, participants, and they did moderate calorie restriction. So they were all given the same amount of calories um, to restrict and with uh, proteins and carbohydrates and everything like that dictated. Everything was matched outside of their sleep restriction time period, which was two different groups. One group got an eight and a half hour time in bed and the other group got a five and a half hour time in bed. Mm -hmm. Time in bed's a proxy for what we can do to induce sleep time so whilst we can't make everyone fall asleep at the same time we can say if we give them the equal opportunity of having eight and a half hours in bed the goal of the study is to get over eight hours or eight hours approximately of sleep and the goal of the study is five and a half hours in bed with hopefully them getting about five hours of sleep um, during their night time we can compare those results and how that works out so that study back in 2010 Eight and a half hours for one group, five and a half hours for the other group. And the study really found that the the, the people that were sleep restricted, right, significantly reduced the amount of um, fat mass that they lost, mm -hmm. right? And they uh, increased the amount of lean body mass that they lost. Mm -hmm. And the differences were inverted. They were equal and inverted. They both lost the same total amount of weight coming out mm -hmm. of the study. And uh, one group on the five and a half hours lost uh, more muscle mass, lean mass, and less body fat over two weeks than the other group that slept eight and a half hours. And I was like, wow, I know so many people that have been living on two weeks of sleep restriction or longer. <laughs> like, uh, my, I have so many people, like, I have clients that have months of sleep restriction, you know, if they're new families or whatever, mm -hmm. money problems or, you know, stress and overwhelm. Two weeks of sleep restriction of less than, you know, uh, eight hours of sleep, closer. Mm -hmm. At five hours of sleep, I've met a lot of people like that. So, like, if your if your metabolism can be influenced by just two weeks of that sleep restriction, um, you know, this is makes so much sense as to why people are seeing reduced amount of fat loss when it comes to a dietary approach, crappy results when it comes to growing muscle mass, mm -hmm. um, poor responses to nutritional strategies, poor responses um, to you know training interventions, um, you know, seeing poor body composition changes. All of these things really just clicked with me back then. Mm -hmm. And so I was really like astounded by that. And so I started going into that realm and looking and investigating around sleep um, and trying to find as much information and you know, like uh, insight into some guidances for really where people should be around that. Um, and now after all this time, I'm a heavy proponent of eight hours plus. There's mm -hmm. like, this is becoming so overwhelmingly uh, apparent that if you sleep less than eight hours, um, that the results for your long-term longevity, your fat mass, your nutrient partitioning, your results on things just doesn't play out. And you're just so mm -hmm. at risk for these long-term diseases. The, the epidemiological studies, which are a class of study, not necessarily super accurate or anything like that, but are becoming very repetitive with their response uh, results showing that Anytime people get less than this, their lifespan is just getting significantly dropped. And since I'm someone who's very for living, I want to maximize my, my every day that I yeah. get on this. Eight hours is such an easy thing for me to understand. Now, I'm uh, married, no kids, no dogs. Like uh, both of us have incomes. So I know how rid ridiculous that sounds for me to say this is what I mm -hmm. find like completely acceptable and stuff like that. 
and I, I recognize all of that and I'm, I'm grateful for it. And I know that when anything changes that impacts that, I really struggle. But, and I've measured my own sleep and done a whole bunch of different things, which is anecdotal. It's not really the greatest advice or evidence that I can give that um, what I'm doing, it should be the same as what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I just see everything go to crap after I sleep less than eight hours. I use a sleep cycle app, which measures accelerometry, noise, and uh, monitors also through the app for heart rate and movement and stuff like that as well. And so those four measures um, capture sleep quality and also sleep quantity. So both mm-hmm. the amount of movement, the phases of sleep and the time that you're asleep for and the time in those phases. So both of them being super important. And anytime I'm less than eight hours, everything goes to crap. I'm, I'm starving. The next day is like, like low in energy. My motivation to want to do stuff is mm-hmm. really resistant so um you know my appetite is through the roof i'm always thinking and craving about foods um and foods that i normally never even think about i have to practice a lot of um strategies to help either minimize (coughs) my reactions to those uh responses Mm -hmm. or to help me work through how and when i act on them so that i can do it in ways that are manageable or in my interests that i'd like to change you know so if i react and overeat on something, then how do I make sure that, that the next time something happens, I don't act like that again kind of thing? Because I'm not perfect. I know these yep. skills and strategies because I suffer just as much as everyone else. Like I have to work on myself just as much mm-hmm. as I do everyone else. Um, but that study was really like so paramount in me really understanding this. So eight hours became something that I really am a massive proponent for. Even people who are athletic and I would consider bodybuilders, you know, someone who trains five or more sessions per week, needing that eight hours or more um, in, t- in times of like uh, sleep. And now we're actually even starting to see high performers, high, high level athletes. And these are collegiate level or above in most of the studies, but um, seeing more sleep than eight hours, somewhere between eight and 10 hours, providing astronomical differences in, in mm-hmm. terms of results and outcomes. Harvard did the first initial sleep extension study on athletes on basketball shooting. And mm-hmm. these guys, the, the, the idea was like, these guys had so much sleep debt from being a, a student, being an athlete, traveling. They were traveling two times interstate, uh, sorry, across states. So mm-hmm. uh, the US from east to west, uh, always battling out. There was always that sleep debt that was happening from that. Um, and so they started looking at and trying to figure out ways to get them to sleep more. And they measure all of this. The imp- the like the changes in accuracy, attention, and cognitive performance were just mm-hmm. through the roof. It was so like profound that now they have adjusted the way that students are approached as athletes, mm-hmm. so that things can be separated and spread out and stuff like that, so that they can maintain that. Because it's not just the the performance that they're getting; it's like the the life loss that happens when those things aren't maintained, and you yeah. push everything limits um so yeah big Actually, in- a, a quick interjection there as a as a yeah. uh, side point they've uh, i think it was a recent study a a controlled british soccer team i think it was they basically split up 30 students into two groups um mm-hmm. to isolate either paired dormitories mm-hmm. or isolated sleeping to mm-hmm. see like when teams travel and, and athlete young athletes are traveling for sport Mm-hmm. If there will be an impact on that, uh, not only their performance, but generally their sleep quality, which then no impacts their performance. Mm-hmm. And to kind of extend that knowledge of sleep performance even further, they found that the the grouped sleeping environment reduced sleep down to nearly like six and a half hours, seven hours uh, mm-hmm. amongst the guys who were actually in that in that group pairing. And then when they isolated them, got straight back up to that eight to nine sleep quality was perceived at like an eight plus 
like the entire difference between them actually creating a sleep environment for their athletes versus oh, we're going to put 20, 15 to 20 year old men in the same room and not let them go nuts. And then be like, Oh, be in bed by 10. Never. Yeah. Apparently it was just not happening. And they've shown then that the isolation in sleep resulted in far better sleep quality and duration. Yeah. 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 I believe you're talking about the Lestala study, which is the Australian soccer team, men's soccer team that they did uh, when they were doing the show, then, yeah. Asian champion, Asian champions league. A brilliant study, brilliant study talking about the inter- impacts and interactions um, on that. And uh, yeah, it just goes to show that like all these influences that we can have on them can really impair stuff, but it's just how quickly it is to A, bounce back and how quickly it is to start seeing the the way our body changes chemically and what the composition of what's going on so that we can start to get things, you know, the way that we want them. Um, and I think it's just becomes a no-brainer thinking about this stuff because sleep is probably one of the things that I have the hardest time convincing people to change their behaviors yeah. on that I use these behavior change skills to get through to people that they have mm-hmm. to work on this and make this a high priority for themselves. Um, it's so much harder than trying to convince someone to eat a particular way or whatever to lose body fat or whatever, because it's kind of like self-evident. Um, yeah. Sleep something that. Well, to kind of, to kind of touch there, to kind of touch the, um, just interject the point a bit there. Do you think because I've I've kind of seen it and and you know in a lot of the the fields of people that I look up to or research and and um not so much study but I guess learn from or have read or listened to you get a lot of the hustle hashtag hustle mentality fuckwits that end up on the you know sleep when your enemy's dead you know you can sleep when you're dead not when your enemy's working or out sleep outwork your enemy not sleep them and you know mm-hmm. I get four hours and I'm up at four o'clock and I go to bed at twelve o'clock and I get it done mm-hmm. there's this perception that that is grind mentality success and i think that leads to then when we get to this idea especially around anyone who wants to train change body composition recover perform just be healthy Mm -hmm. yeah you can work to make money but you know you've got these people that are telling you that if you're not working at 4 a.m or if you're not you know up until midnight and waking up again at four o'clock then you're not doing it hard enough and you're not wanting it bad enough Mm -hmm. i think that potential youtube generation of hustling instead Mm -hmm. of just being more effective while you're awake is leading to this loss of sleep or this perception that, you know, it's better to not sleep. And then our job again comes in with the resistance and the undesired change. Mm. We're trying to say, look, that's great. You can, Mm. you know, you want to fucking work hard and put in all the hours. Let's Mm -hmm. make your 12 to 16 hours you're awake more efficient and Mm -hmm. see where we can improve that and get better sleep rather than sleep four hours where we know the multitude of health benefits that will come from a failure health consequences that will come from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think there's a correlation there that, that that's you know playing a part of it sure yeah massively and like we, we this is human behavior all over like this is easy cognitive bias is like we look for exceptions to rules to prove the norms all the time you know like if we can see that people on average need eight hours of sleep and then they're like right but like my aunt can sleep on five hours and has been fine her whole life or whatever it's like yeah like potentially like we're starting to see chronotypes matter where we can determine someone's dna figure out if they have expressions of particular proteins which tell us whether or not someone needs more or less sleep and stuff like that and how much of that and just kind of scale that towards the recommendations which eventually sure we're going to move to um but at the moment like those things that we see become the evidence that people take on board whether they realize it or not they like right like it can't be that important or whatever but what most people don't understand is how much stuff goes on during sleep like uh, like it's really phenomenal for so many things like we're constantly under 
um, repair and break down and building mm-hmm. things, whatever's going on, but it's maximized during sleep. And so like, if you think about all the results that you've got for something, think about of how much you're leaving on the table, how much better you could be, you know, um, by, by sleeping the amounts or more, you know, trying to find that sweet spots of you getting somewhere in the realm of eight to 10 hours uh, to get better, you know, outcomes or whatever. Because if you think of how hard you're working at the moment to maintain or get the things that you are getting, if you could make it get better results than that by doing the same things just by sleeping a little bit more, like if you're in this for getting out of it as much as you can, like why wouldn't you? And it's trying to figure out a way to describe that to people in a way that helps them understand and relate to it so that they can buy into it to do it, which I find is the biggest struggle. It's like it's... Yeah, it's the thing I struggle the most with to help people buy into to work on and do. Um, and a lot of it comes down to limitations on things. If they're, a, you know, a family or whatever and they've got requirements and things that they're going to do, that generally gets compromised. Um, but what I want to p- make people aware of is, like, what that looks like, you know, like what else could be compromised mm-hmm. and that can be maintained or whatever, you know, like you don't have to do another training session to burn the same amount of body fat yeah. or stimulate the same amount of muscle growth if you were able to sleep more you know we could drop a training session or something like that like mm-hmm. there's always trying to figure out ways in which you could get more out of your life that doesn't feel like you're just constantly giving up things as well yeah uh, i think that's a, a very important point to, to kind of comprehend is that we're not trying to sacrifice you know doing the extra work at the consequence of the extra sleep doesn't really pay off like it's mm-hmm. not the the return on that investment isn't there it's actually, if anything, more costly and taxing than you would think it is. Um, but yeah, and, and I guess that that um, ends up being one of the key facilitators, I think, in body compositional change that is obviously quite missed by a lot of people. Um, it's something that I've, one term I've found quite powerful is comparing it to something that, you know, in my realm, obviously, of, of the way I coach and what I kind of compare it to then is that basically it's the most free natural steroid you can possibly take. If you're going to look for something like before I let someone even remotely talk, uh, discuss uh, androgens, anabolics, talking about any oral, any sort of external supplementation. Okay. But are you sleeping? Yeah. You know, you're saying that the result isn't working. The program isn't working. The, the calories aren't working. Are you in bed? Are you getting seven to nine? Are you at least, you know, are you someone who used to sleep six? Like a really mm-hmm. easy uh, comparison for me is I, you know, I compare, are you sleeping six hours a night or the, their number consistently says six if you can get to seven, you've added basically an extra night's sleep to your week because mm-hmm. it's an extra hour every night. You it, yeah. You've basically, in an easy way to compare that, you've now got what was six, uh, seven nights a week of sleep. You've basically yeah. added an eighth night of sleep mm-hmm. just by adding an extra hour to your day of sleeping and going mm-hmm. from six to seven, seven times a week. Yeah. That, yeah. that simple hour now gives you basically an extra night's sleep for you, which can you, you can't even comprehend that. Mm-hmm. And then to sort of go, oh, but I want to I start uh, you know, exogenous. Mm-hmm. no like let's take the natural approach first and let's get you set up to be benefiting from what your own body can already do for you then we'll look at that next step mm-hmm. yeah totally yeah it's quite wild to to think about like in ways that you're being impacted and how you can account for it and ways to help people understand that the, the cost of it as well it's like I think about it often, it's the most aggressive time we are growing and recovering. So it's like if you could grow a, a kilo of muscle a month at the moment and you're able to get some more sleep in, like why wouldn't you want a kilo and a half or something like that? You know, like yeah. if you're able to drop 
two kilos, three kilos of body fat. Like, why wouldn't you want to drop more kind of thing? Like, even I guess like, enough? like, don't you want it to come out more? Do you really yeah. want to more? And then I guess even on top of that, like, like we'll, we'll move forward because we could talk about sleep for fucking six hours. But the, the, what we're seeing in things like dementia and Alzheimer's and the long, like the mental, the, the neurological problems and damage that comes long-term or that the body is susceptible to in old age we can prevent or delay or offset a lot of that by the fact that we sleep properly and take care of ourselves and, you know, consume antioxidants and make sure we're taking care of our brain and our body. Mm -hmm. But the, the health benefits that come from the reduction or removal of amyloid plaque in the brain, the things that lead to calcification and things like Alzheimer's that occurs during sleep. And -hmm. people don't understand this. So when we're trying to get rid of beta amyloid plaques, Mm-hmm. There is a fluid the brain releases during sleep that cycles and washes through the crevices and all the nooks and crannies to help that go away. Mm-hmm. And so when people like we're starting to see, you know, we kind of have this conversation off air about you know, my grandparents and where they are and they're kind of like battle with dementia. When you, when you see it and you're like, the fact that I can offset this, like, mm-hmm. why wouldn't you? Just mm-hmm. in that aspect alone, it's mm-hmm. a, a free health prescription that you can do immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's like um, one of the limitations of being human is like we value short term over the long term because after about eight to 12 weeks, we can't imagine who that person is. We can't relate. There's like no way for us to gauge and understand who that is, whether that be an evolutionary skill or a psychological skill will be forever argued. But um, yeah, it's... uh, probably one of the, the the most famous studies talking about this was where they got people to look at themselves in a 3D, uh, an AI animated version of their face in with age, um, aging added to their face so that they could see who they were looking like in the mm-hmm. future and stuff like that. that. Only then were people able to adjust their behaviours, you know, being told about your situation in 12 weeks' time or a year's time mm-hmm. or 50 years' time doesn't make us more inclined to do or change our behaviors in the moment because it's so hard for us to kind of gauge and understand. We think about that person like it's a stranger. Like mm-hmm. we just don't, we aren't able to like, um, comprehend it. So only then, only seeing someone yourself, you know, aged or whatever, and then was their slight impact. And even then it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, astronomical. It was like, a, it was a 30% increase in life insurance spending and stuff like that. Like it wasn't astronomical. <laughs> So it's not like they all of a sudden overhauled their whole life and yeah. healthy and stuff like that, like tiny friggin' influences on this stuff, um, which is, you know, wild to think, but it's a limitation of just working with us as humans. So really knowing that, I always try and bring it back to like, how is this going to impact you over the next day, weeks, stuff like that, make it relatable and, um, you know, consumable for people as well. Yeah, it's a very powerful, like, I guess it's almost like a decompartmentalization process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i guess yeah. uh, like to to kind of finish off because we're gonna ramble forever and, and like we might not even get time to dive into research and evidence because well we could just talk forever mm-hmm. and we usually do what are your sort of next steps like when we're looking at like the very basics i guess of body composition change when we're looking at say even your population and who you tend to focus on and work with mm-hmm. i know i know where you're going to go and you're going to talk about things like lowest hanging fruits but describe that process to me or to the listeners in a way that you know we can grasp you don't need to be hundred percent all or nothing. We're looking at things like the, the lowest possible investment for the biggest possible return. Yeah. Yeah. So I do at the initial part of taking anyone on kind of like five pillars is my, my thinking it's motivation, nutrition, training, sleep, um, and stress management. So I always think about from those aspects. So if I can find ways to capture 
a how i think they are and b get them to report how they think they are and then we just monitor and find ways to either reduce things down and keep remeasuring over time um i do that at the start to then give them uh, approaches to whatever it is that they need so if they recognize that they don't understand anything about nutrition instead of giving them a macro diet or something to follow along give them example plates or example like recipes pre-calculated things out for them or whatever it is that they can then consume and go, right, I can apply this. Mm-hmm. And all along the way, we're continually adjusting their motivation to take it from external to intrinsic. And still having the external stuff there helps out. It really does. But we want to foster as much intrinsic drive as possible so that they can sustain this over the long term. Um, and if they can't sustain it, they don't lead my we don't stop coaching together until they can essentially. So that's one of my checks to make sure that are they ready to stop, you know, if they can't leave coaching, then we don't, we just keep going until they get to that point. Um, And yeah, so it will be finding something that they can comprehend. That's just a little bit above whatever that is that they're at at the moment that makes them do and think about things, but also provides and always aligns with values, competence, relatedness, and autonomy, always just circling back to those aspects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, yeah, I guess a really simple but easy way to view how you can even start with just basics of body composition change, behavioral mm-hmm. change, like yeah. just seeing where the person is and what they, what they, I guess, lack in their mm-hmm. repertoire or skill set. Yeah, because um, yeah, I, I guess from there, it becomes, it becomes relatively easy then when we can break down and look at what, what tools they're missing, what abilities they're missing. You can start, like, you know, there's no point us harping on training when you're pretty fit, proficient at training if yeah. you're struggling to understand what a protein is. Yeah, I, think, I, I find it an issue where, you know, we've, we've kind of talked about this before, where there's this almost polarization or encampments that happen in fitness where, you know, there was a big swing towards the IIFYM crowd and it was like, don't do anything meal plan related because that's disgusting and restrictive and you're a piece of shit of a coach if you do that because you're not giving your client options. Mm-hmm. But also here's, you know, macros and you can go learn how to eat donuts and cake and lollies but also then you start to miss concepts of like micronutrition then it kind of swings back and now people are like you know just having donuts and stuff like that you're missing out on the micronutrient health mm-hmm. don't do ifym get on this sort of basis and we start to do this way mm-hmm. and i think that's that's an important distinction i guess to see or meet where someone is and see like you know do you actually even understand what a, a, a macro is first if mm-hmm. not do we start with a meal plan? Or if you mm-hmm. find that too rigid, can we just start simply help you help you shape a plate, help you sure. start with some basics and just get to like some, I guess I kind of do this in a way where I have fundamentals. I'll give someone in our, in our new app. We'll start with like some basic actions each day that will be like, okay, I want five serves of fruit and vegetables across a day or three, depending on who they are. If they're more of an mm-hmm. advanced athlete or if there's someone tracking or if they're fairly new, mm-hmm. I want three serves of vegetables on your plate today at some point and a portion of protein at each plate. Yeah, two pieces of fruit, two liters of water. We're going to start there. From yeah. that, we generally will find a distinct change in body composition, sense of digestion, bowel movements, health. They feel more yeah. energetic. They feel more alive. They just feel better. Yeah. And then from there, it's like, okay, so why was that the case? Because actually, you started getting more fiber and micronutrients, and this was concerned, and you felt full from protein, blah blah. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's an important distinction: is understanding where the client's starting. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of coaches. We'll either do one or the other. It's almost like yeah. you will only get meal plans or I don't do meal plans. You only get macros mm-hmm. instead of saying, you know, but are you suited to either one? Yeah. Yeah. I think I I was trying to count while you were talking there and I think I've got like 12 different tools that I use. Okay. So I just like, I'm not, not even close to a one trick pony. Like 
I, I used to be, don't get me wrong, I used to be one of those shitty people. And like, I recognize that when I come up against someone that was like, I don't know where macros are and meal plans suck, I don't want to follow one. And so I was like, how do I help them? Fuck, I, I only give someone macros or only given someone meal plans. What do I do? And so, yeah, you have to learn and have different tools and approaches because if you don't meet people where they're at, you're never going to facilitate behavior change. So you're actually never going to help them out. You're just going to get them a result and then they're going to leave and that result is just going to become undone, which is a massive problem in the industry at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're completely great to begin with. Um, but and I guess like to kind of, I guess, add the nuance is that there are coaches that work with more highly advanced athletes that just simply, they know numbers and macros. So it's easy. Sure. To say, Look, totally. here you go. You do, this is what I do. You've come to me knowing what I do. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to give you numbers and you're going to hit them and we're probably going to see a result. And then mm-hmm. from there, if we're finding digestive issues, we can kind of coach through why that might be occurring. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously the polar end of that where I'm just someone who wants a meal plan. I want to be told what to do seven days mm-hmm. a week and I'll eat the same shit. Those mm-hmm. people exist. Um, it's more so understanding that you don't want to polarize that one and mm-hmm. just emphasize that one. If we're trying to work with a new population or a bit more generalized population, it's mm-hmm. about understanding we're meeting where they are and sort of, that's for yeah. sure it's like the smallest thing. So I know mm-hmm. we, we both work in supplement industry where people would come in and say, I need a protein powder because you know mm-hmm. this product's going to help me do this. Yeah. And we look at their whole food intake across a day and you've got leftover lasagna from the night before and you've got a ham salad for lunch that contains like 10 grams of protein and maybe a packet of chips or a croissant at, at Smoko and <laughs> that's their day's intake of food. And you're like, yeah, no wonder you feel like shit. Like you can yeah. train the house down. That's not going to do anything. Yeah, you got 30 grams of protein across your day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, and yeah, as, as trying to avoid as much supplementation as I can. It's always like what foods, what training processes, what psychological tools can we create first then approach supplementation as well you know so many people take ashwagandha to help reduce stress but i'm like how about we focus on a tool that you don't need to pay for that is you can take everywhere you know you're not limited by going overseas or traveling or forgetting to take your thing and worrying about that you know like how about we do all these aspects and then take it on top of it there's nothing wrong with subs you know proven supplements and stuff like that but we it's a supplement it shouldn't be the first yeah, the, the amount of the amount of um, you know, in, in a very professional way, I try to address this conversation. But even um, females that I work with that have partners and stuff like that, we're talking about stress. I'm like, instead of worrying about X Y Z product, how about you and your partner, you know, get into the sheets and have some you time. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, you're seeing weight drops and you know reductions in uh, water totally. retention and stress and all these different markers improve. And they're like, what is this? Yeah. I'm like, well, yeah. turns out you just had some stress reduction because mm-hmm. that's what that is. And yep. the minds are blown. And it's like, yeah, these these simple tools in body compositional change doesn't need to be expensive protocols and drug supplementations. Like mm-hmm. just starting with basic behaviors and some simple additions, or you know, yep. even if it is programmed for a while, look, I'm gonna program into your into your system once a week. You and your husband, I don't care when it is or where it is, or hey, do it. Guess what? You're going over, you're going out somewhere, and when you come mm-hmm. home, you're gonna give each other some time. And yep. what you do with that time is your business, but I'm probably gonna see some changes in numbers. Oh, mm-hmm. there's changes in numbers, surprising. Yeah. Yeah. And it's when people start to see that stuff that they go, right, maybe there is something to stress management. Maybe I'm more stressed than I realized. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like it to kind of like wrap up there. Like I had a, uh, one of my boys, uh, you know, he's just, he's literally starting prep um, and he kind of sat and he's taken a lot of time to become more introspective. And he had a moment where he's like, we did our check-in and he, and he sort of said, Oh, I actually am a lot more stressed this week than I thought. And he's, you know, he, he's quantified his stress numbers and you know, it's like eight, 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 and I was like, yeah, we're going through all these things. He was like, actually, 
I'm a lot more stressed than I realized. And I was like, mm-hmm. yes, this mm-hmm. is why you start to see the emotional attachments to food and you start to see the hunger cravings kick in. And your, yeah. you know, your coping mechanisms activate. And you start to do this and this instead of that. And, you know, all those little things where it's simply just recognizing stress and doing things to, uh, to mm-hmm. reduce them. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. it's there. And from because of the fact that that stress level is there, all yeah. of these cascading effects and behaviors now want to kick in. Yeah. Yeah. One of, I just had a ex- similar example of like uh, someone outlining all these foods to me and like, all right, I love eating all these foods, but like um, it's not helping me lose weight. And I'm like, all right, well, like, you know what to eat, but you just don't want to eat what you know you need to eat. You know, why do you think that is? And they're like, ah, uh, I don't, I'm, I'm lacking in motivation. I'm like, it has nothing to do with motivation. Like you're just stressed and your body is reacting to stress because you're taking away all the things that you you manage stress with and food's mm-hmm. the only thing that's left. Um, and so how about we drop the stress down and see if you want to eat those foods anymore. If you still want to eat those foods anymore, then we can talk about motivation and behavioral change mm-hmm. around foods and stuff like that. But at the moment, for like, you know, think about what's what's really causing these things. Yeah, I think that's it. Again, of all the important points we've had in this chat, <laughs> an important concept for coaches to grasp is, you know, like like you said, the five kind of pillars, if you will, that that make significant changes in body composition. It's yeah. important to comprehend stress and sleep. And, mm-hmm. you know, rather than looking at the advanced protocols of nutrition, like, oh, I'm going to give you carb cycling and we're going to manipulate calories and high low days and stuff like yeah. that. It's more so the fundamental basics that can give someone large change in the shortest investment because that's the the i guess is my way to simplify is we're trying to get the least resistant behavior that's going mm-hmm. to yield them the biggest response to start to foster that motivation and have mm-hmm. them replicate and repeat that action over time yep. things like right. you know, just including some extra fruit you're going mm-hmm. to find that their digestion is going to improve their bowels will move better so all of a sudden they're dropping weight because mm-hmm. they're shitting more and they're mm-hmm. actually feeling empty and not bloated and distended and disgusting having yep. more protein is going to make them feel more satiated so all of a sudden they don't mm-hmm. want to eat two extra pieces of cake because they've had 200 grams of protein in a day. They just don't know it because they haven't been tracking it. Mm-hmm. You know, these simple yeah, things that lead to such drastic downstream effects, if you will, mm-hmm. that result in body composition change before we even worry about getting to um, you know, tracking data and tracking metrics and tracking macros and things like that. I think mm-hmm. it's an important point that I've, you know, because I'm so spoken against this idea of like, you know, I draw the line on educated people talking about intuitive eating because the second you spent five years learning about nutrition, I'm sorry, but you're no longer intuitively eating. You have mm-hmm. developed implicit procedural operational memory and mm-hmm. you now know how that works. So when you as an educator talk to someone about uh, intuitive eating, but you know exactly what should go on a plate, the proteins and how much that portion should look like, carbohydrates, blah, blah, blah. That's no longer intuitive eating. That's mm-hmm. a process of you applying procedurally learned knowledge. Yeah. Um, I think people think that I'm against building untracked foundational skills, mm-hmm. but I actually use those in most people to build mm-hmm. up the knowledge to get to someone being like, hey, can I track this? Yep. Yeah. Now I want you to go out and have a free day and track mm-hmm. a meal, like track your, you know, for people that I'm building up, it might be like, look, tick these boxes. And then once a week, I want you to track your plate. And mm-hmm. then we'll start to see how you do it. Well, how did you track it? Well, now we use nut tab and now we use this. Yada, yada. But I yeah. think that's such a fundamental skill for people to understand as coaches is learning these basic principles first and getting the smallest possible actions with the mm-hmm. least amount of resistance and the most amount of return that get clients such a huge fucking result that yeah, totally. people just fail to comprehend that that's what actually is, is happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a massive fan of carb, like carb cycling, right? And from back in my macro tracking days and with all my clients, I would find that their fat loss 
and lean muscle retention would be better doing carbohydrate cycling processes for a bunch of uh, reasons we can talk about on another podcast. But if I can get someone to sleep one hour more and that gives them the same result for free without doing some complicated nutritional strategy or something like that, like why wouldn't you, let alone the myriad of other influences it has on every other system within the body because it's so far reaching. So yeah, I'm always trying to think of like, what thing can I do that gives the biggest bang for people's buck essentially? Yeah. And I guess that's a, like a, I guess it's a really, really easy way to wrap it up is that, you know, for, for anyone coaching, getting into coaching or coaches that are listening, even my clients that are coaches is we're not looking, I guess, for very sustainable, successful lifestyle change, whether it be someone wanting to become an athlete, a bodybuilder, a powerlifter, or just someone who wants to be, you know, fuckable, I guess, from now, you know, being that body like they they want to look good naked for their partner mm-hmm. is we're not, you don't have to start with these hyper complicated, hyper sexualized concepts and, and uh, procedures and protocols. Mm-hmm. It's more so starting with the simplest possible actions that will get the biggest return with mm-hmm. the least amount of friction to the use. Mm-hmm. And from that, you start to build what we talked about, internal motivation. They start to get intrinsic benefits. They start to see the rewards. All of mm-hmm. a sudden, it's no longer because my coach or doctor told me to. It's because mm-hmm. I feel really good when me and my wife have sex and I look mm-hmm. shredded and I look jacked and she's like, holy shit, like this mm-hmm. is the man I married 20 years ago. Or like, you know, we were when we were together and that was when we were most intimate. All of a sudden, you have this intrinsic drive to want to sustain these behaviors because, well, it turns out it wasn't just about losing 10 kilos. It was because you wanted to feel connected to your wife again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, pretty much summed it up. I mean, basically what we're saying is go have sex with your partner. <laughs> yeah, take a message. <laughs> Relational advice here from us is to get shredded, go have sex. <laughs> One of many tools, but implement yeah. it. Yeah. Anyway, guys, um, mate. <laughs> I just want to say that this is a, a very, um, how do you even put it, humbling moment for me, I guess, to have been from where we started five, six, seven, seven years ago? Six yeah. Years? I'm going to say seven years ago. Seven years ago. Six yeah. last year. Yeah. When we started working at NW together. I think that's about mm-hmm. right. Fuck. Yeah. But yeah, to go back to go back there and, you know, to be where we are now here, where we can sit in a conversation together and, and discuss things and, exchange ideas and rants i think it's a for me it's a very profound humbling moment um appreciate your time joining me giving me your morning um and yeah no doubt i look forward to many 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 more chats that we'll have off camera anyway but mm-hmm. give everyone a, a quick wrap on how we can find you and see more of your stuff and what you do and all that jazz sure yeah thanks thanks for having me dude it was awesome to be here as well um and to remember going from like where we started all those years ago to where we are now it's it's a really cool, really cool experience. Um, you can find me at howtostopdieting.com uh, or those uh, that that Instagram and uh, at Facebook as well, um, where if you want to talk and reach out and speak about sports performance stuff or even just you know behavioral change and long-term sustaining of your weight loss, essentially what I focus on is all the processes to get to a point where you sustain it long-term. I don't want you to leave me and regain all the weight. That's not the whole point of anything. So how to stop dieting is the, the essence of my company. Um, and we can talk, we can talk through all of those things there. I'll put, I'll send some links to Ben so that you can find them in the description down below. Awesome, mate. Again, appreciate you jumping on and giving me your time and we're probably about to chat some shit anyway. Yeah. Sounds good. See you guys. Catch up.